dangerous virus is spreading rapidly in China. More than 4,100 died from COVID. You see the death. Our fear is that the Dow will drop and drop quickly. We might be looking at right now. The circuit breaker is a very little. There was looting underway nearby. The growing political polarization in America is hard to ignore. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Three Words, a bite-sized podcast about the simple and yet strategic choices that all of us can make in order to become the very best version of ourselves. My name is Dr. Michael Brown. I am the host of Three Words, and today is a first. We are actually going to be engaging in a three-part conversation entitled Country in Crisis. Country in Crisis, a three-part conversation with my dear, dear friend, Steve Risky. I have known Steve for 28 years. We've lived in the same town for two full decades, 20 years. Steve Risky is one of the most respected men that I know. He's a thought leader. He's a historian. He is, quite honestly, brilliant and very, very kind and compassionate as well. And so, Steve... I wanted to invite you into this three-part series. They are going to be each three words, but three word questions. Under the umbrella of this conversation, country in crisis. So the question for today in this three-part series is what? Is crisis inevitable? Is crisis inevitable? I would say that we are in agreement, Steve, that we are a country in crisis. And so before we even go to that question and explore the question of is crisis inevitable, let me ask you first, how did we get here in this situation that we're in today? Um, I mean, without absorbing all the time we have to trace through the history, um, every culture, everyone that has existed on earth has had to exist on this weird continuum. Where like on one hand, we might believe something like if we all had the exact, exact, exact same set of rules, then nobody would be uh, out of step with one another and, and we would all be in perfect alignment. But that leaves no freedom and people don't like living that way. Authoritarian situations usually blow up badly. And then on the other end, we'll have like ultra ultimate libertarianist, uh, everyone does what's right in their own eyes kind of living. And then it creates a, an incredible amount of friction. And then we're stuck. Where do we move the, like, like a fader, you know, like mm-hmm. on a soundboard or something like, or a dimmer light switch? Where do we f- put the fader in the middle to try to say we want to give people room to do what they want, but also have enough common cultural expectations that we're not like, like think about like driving on the road. You get to pick your speed to a certain extent, but you go too far out that we're going to put red lights on you. And right, right. I used to get a lot of tickets, but, uh, <laughs> But the fact is we do that with culture and, mm-hmm. and here and in the U.S. as part of the whole cultural experiment was uh, a belief in something that was called classical liberalism. Now make sure we distinguish that from, from modern progressive liberalism, which is, which is the thing, but progress or classical liberalism said, Hey, we can make room for lots of different. Uh, isms, lots of different worldviews, lots of different ways of life. We can, we can make room for them and, and basically make it work. Mm-hmm. And it, and it generally has its ability to work, but the more worldviews we pack in, uh, 
And as we've become increasingly pluralistic as a society and, and as, as more uh, people from around the earth, as our world has become smaller and people have been able to come from places that might not have been able to arrive here hundreds of years ago, more isms have packed in. Well, then there's only two more things then. Then the last century was a war of isms. Communism, Nazism, uh, all these isms, even Christianity and all these, these major mm. world forces all came to the fore and said, we're the right ism. Everyone live by our set of rules and it'll work. And of course, oof, World War II is really maybe the easiest example to say those isms can become painful and hurtful. Yes. And then it was our generation, really the superior generation, Gen X, <laughs> you know, the, the right one, the right generation, but that we kind of came to the fore and, and, you know, the multicultural movement, the, the, um, postmodernism, all those things associated with us. And we said, you know what? We're tired of isms. We're tired of everyone saying this is the right one and you're all wrong for, and, and live and let live. We said, and mm. we created a world where we said, just do your thing. Everyone's equally right. Well, mm. That might have some problems in it, but where we've come to crisis is on that scale, the amount of peoples whose isms are now shoving to the front where nationalism and, and, and uh, anti-racism and um, progressivism and conservatism, they're all vying for the stage right now. Okay. And we're a big country with a lot of places where... Um, you can be in your echo chamber and you can be with the people who agree with you lockstep so much so that you can feel like, yeah, my ism does work. And it's absurd that anybody should ever disagree with me because I don't have to, you know, in the world yeah. of the uh, social media uh, echo chamber, I don't even have to deal with them until I go to work or not to deal with mm. them until we have a presidential election. And it turns out all the isms are not even just coming to the stage. They're coming to the stage with a prepackaged belief. That, of course, I'm right. My echo chamber already established that. You must mm. be a moron for being the other one. And now we're in crisis. So it sounds like this has been a crisis that has been looming and growing for many, many years. But it feels mm. different now. Like we're older, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, and so we've seen a lot of this and we've felt some of that conflict and some mm -hmm. of that crisis and some of the things. I mean, everything you just described, I resonate with and I'm like, yeah, I see that. I see this. I see this. But doesn't now feel different? Um, or what do you think about that? Uh, you said looming and growing. What if you think of it like waves coming in and out, right? Mm. Uh, the civil war and the civil rights movements might have felt a lot like this as well, right? If you would have yes. been in the middle of that. Well, I'm not that old, so I wasn't there yeah, for no. those. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, we're close up, but we, we grew up like in the, uh, in the sort of the backwash of that mm -hmm. civil rights world where it was still around us when we were children. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the eighties kind of it was, was gone. Yeah. But no, I think, I think because we're stuck in the middle of that, that, uh, fader, so to speak, it will, it will pop up at times and how we deal with it hopefully won't come to arms like it did in the 1860s. Um, but it's tough to deal with. Yeah. So are you concerned? Yeah. Why? Um, because I, I really think, um, that we have underestimated. If you happen to have, did you by any chance watch the, uh, the, the, the social media, the social dilemma? Uh, we have. Yes. Yes. As okay. a family, we gathered around and watched that. Yes. I am concerned because and I think that, uh, that video showed such a great picture of what the problem mm -hmm. is that we've unleashed on the world 
with our smartphones, a force that is far beyond any of our reckoning and what it is and what it's able to do to shape minds. And, and with a force that's strong, usually you have societal structures designed to help it stay in its place. Hmm. This one came so fast and from such an unknown place. It's everywhere. It's all over. It's determining whole worldviews, whole ways people think. And it has no checks on it. And I don't want the government to be the checks, but we don't have any checks on it. And in doing so, I'm very concerned that the the echo chamber thing is not is only in the infancy of its problem. People. So think. you just made a comment that you don't want the government to be the ones who are checking on that, but you're not sure who, yeah, and, and a, what, and and so forth. And what's interesting about you, we've not talked a lot about politics because obviously we just experienced the presidential election, but you didn't vote for either of the primary candidates, no. and we were talking off camera. And the reason was, and if I can quote you, and I would love for you to expand upon this idea, is you didn't think either of them would actually help. No. I think they're both uh, uh, the the fruit of two large movements at war. And it was really a Victor Go the Spoils thing if either of them Mm. got elected. And uh, no, I I think – I think we chose the far more polite of the two. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that's really going to be very much in doubt. But uh, no, I struggled. Uh, I mean, I struggled greatly with my vote. I thought mm. a lot about it because the implications are, are massive in every direction. But I, I just couldn't. Not for me. But I also don't begrudge anyone their vote. I find that strange. Okay. Uh, talk to me about that. Because obviously what we're finding in, in, in the culture today, since we're talking about is crisis inevitable – is there is this sense, and I'm feeling it, mm-hmm. and obviously you know me well enough, I am always one to tout this notion of finding common ground and listening carefully and, and, and learning deliberately and looking closely and trying to under, lean in to understand the other person. But there's been this sense, and I think you've, you've talked about it, you alluded to it, that for those who voted for either candidate, there's this notion there's surely 70 or 80 million people who have lost their minds um, on the other side, right? And I'm thinking, that can't be true. Um, There's very thoughtful, kind, um, amazing human beings who voted across the spectrum, including somewhere in the middle, maybe where you voted. But help me unpack that. Help me think about that a little bit. Hmm. Well, one of the lies... Of multi, of I celebrated Gen X a moment ago, but really yeah. one of the lies of um, that whole Gen X movement is because isms have consequences, we should just have none. That's impossible. We always have isms. We maybe the ism isn't an official world religion or official world movement, but we mm. always do secularism is a is a way of thinking of the world, and we we instinctively think, and all of us do it. You do it. We all yes. We just, but if everyone would just agree with me, we could, this thing could work so great. <laughs> I promise in your arguments with Teresa, you've had the thought, why didn't she just agree with me? This thing will be over, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, and, and in doing so, we look at somebody who's doing the exact opposite thing and going, you're ruining this thing. Hmm. You're ruining this thing. Cause that's, that actually captures, I think the essence. It's not that you think differently. Um, mm. but that you're actually ruining, <laughs> um, the world, yes. literally. And probably if we're honest from a self 
interested perspective. You're ruining the life I'm trying to build for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that, that Teresa and I and our kids talk a lot about and for right or wrong is that whenever we cast a vote, and I'm just curious what you think about this. Whenever we cast a vote in, in whatever situation, we want to cast a vote, not only with an eye on what I want and what is best mm-hmm. for me, but what is best for the larger whole. It just feels more, I don't know, selfless, sacrificial, but it also just, I just don't want everything to be about me and mm-hmm. my family and my bank account and my neighborhood and my home and my whatever, you know, sure, um, I want it to but be. You're now telling the people who, who read Ayn Rand and who say, what the best thing that could happen for us is, is if we all just took care of ourselves, we'd all be taken care of. Mm-hmm. And so just as you doing that, you already trampled somebody's ism. It's harder than we think to do this. This is worth, uh, but so how did I trample it though? So for instance, if I have that perspective, it can't, and let's just go to the question Mm because the question is, I mean, what you just said, there's always going to be isms. Uh, they're not going to disappear. Uh, even when we don't have a label for a particular thing and call it an ism, it's there, Mm -hmm. um, titled or not is conflict inevitable. Is there ever going to be a time when we don't experience conflict? Yes. Well, ha, um, every uh, belief system, I mean, I'm a Christian. So I believe if, if Christianity could flourish, but every, it, and I mean this in every single way though, like, uh, that everyone believes that if their way of thinking were to flourish. So we need to talk mm-hmm. about the way of thinking. There's three Please. questions that we have to answer to have a real robustism. Right. So the first question is going to be, uh, how do I experience a healthy or well or a good life? Right. So is it, is it money? Is it health? Is it happiness? Is it relationship? All the things that you pack into that question and we won't put okay. a lot of work on that unless you want to. But then the next question would then be, how do we create a society that gives that to everybody? Hmm. So if we call a society just, we will mean something like the society has done its job to make sure everyone has equal access or realistic or robust access to the good life. And then so what the, is the good life? How does, how do we make sure everyone can experience yeah. the good life? How do we do this together? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. We might say arrange a society. We could yeah. say the words. How do we do, do right? it together as a community? Yeah. And then here's the last one. And it's one of the most unexamined, but one of the most powerful of the three is how do we become that kind of people? So mm. most people you'll hear them say the problem we have with whatever side doesn't agree with me is ignorance. Well, that reflects a cultural belief that education is the way to make us become mm. that sort. But I think the more educated we become, does that really work? Uh, some believe in technology, some believe in science, some believe in religion, some believe what's the thing that will improve us, that will cause us to become the, the kind of people actually able to do it. And so this podcast, by the way, is an attempt at that. It, it is a way of saying, let's talk reasonably about this. Let's learn how I can do my specific life. You've done a lot of work on choices and those, your, yes. your belief in choices is, is an examination of the question, how do I become the kind who can? Hmm. Okay. So those three all pack together. And if I have a person who, especially if they feel threatened, believes that creating personal safety is the good life. Okay. And I have another person who says, my personal safety is only your choice to make your personal safety it, 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 it involves going away from mine. 
So we'll, we'll use sort of like stereotypes for just a little bit. And I apologize if they're too stereotypey, but so you got a person somewhere in the Midwest whose sense of safety, their sense of cultural safety is that the things have always been the same and they're changing fast. Yes. I hear uh, this all yeah. the time. I might look at the people who are changing things fast going, you're ruining it. Hmm. And then you might look at the people who are progressive, who are looking and saying that thing that it was, it wasn't that great. It wasn't mm -hmm. the good. It's not giving the good life. And we need to change to this new thing. Or And if you don't, then you'll continue to oppress. We'll use that language that continues, is, that is often used. So now I've got a person who says, stay the same. Well, that's threatening. And that sense of, if safety is involved mm -hmm. in my well-being matrix, we are guaranteed crisis now, aren't we, right? Very, very interesting. And you don't think, regardless of who is elected, <laughs> whether it's presidential or congressional mm -hmm. or even local, like that isn't, do you think that is going to diminish or at least decrease conflict? No. Uh, President Biden will decrease the conflict for the people who agree with him. Mm. And they will feel, whoa. This thing just calmed down for me. But for the people who love President Trump, this thing is on fire. Hmm. You know, and I've got my opinion on, on how they see these things, but man, it's tough. In the past, we didn't rely on winning the person who has the most to sort of uh, the president, the over all 330 million yeah. of us for our most important structures. We used to have intermediary structures that weren't governance. Hmm. Uh, you could belong to your Elks Club. You could belong to your church. You could belong to your uh, these uh, familial societies. We had more ways of creating societies, little societies I around see, yourself I that see, had yeah. those, right? <clears throat> well, for a whole host of reasons, we've tended to get away from them. Hmm. Um, even like the person who doesn't live with anybody who lives alone, if that's a number that's rising quickly and we've tended to believe as a society that my personal freedom and my personal identity is my best path to well-being. Okay. And we've sacrificed a lot of relational unity. The society's mm. tough because if you want to belong to one, it's going to make claims on you. Like I want to belong to my family. And because of that, I have had somebody make a claim that I'm not allowed to have sex with any of the other women out there who might be pretty, any of them. Mm. And I've had to make the decision, do I like that arrangement? Do I like that her love for me and her this relationship is worth sacrificing all that? So in my case, I would say, yes, the, the familial structure, the relational structure was so rewarding. The reward of being able to sleep with anyone I want is, is so small and tawdry. It's not worth it. But another person might say, my personal freedom, that's the one. And if mm. we do that and we sacrifice more and more of those structures that had claim on us, we should suspect crisis. Yeah. So you have answered the question um, mm -hmm. and obviously given us a tremendous amount of background, even to this situation we find ourselves in today, which is we are a country in crisis. You've described it as waves. You think that the day will come when it will be a little less intense, mm -hmm. <laughs> at least for a season. And then it might come another time. Uh, on the other side of our lives, where it will become a tense of this nature again. Um, but you've answered the question for us. And uh, for those who are listening and who are viewing even us on our YouTube channel, 
This is the first of three conversations of a country in crisis. So the first question is crisis inevitable? Uh, Steve Risky, my guest here today on Three Words Podcast, would say yes. It is inevitable and it will always be, to some degree, crisis. The second question that we are about to step into as the second conversation in this three-part series is this. So please be sure to join us. Is truth knowable? For life coaching, consulting services, or to hire a keynote speaker, please visit dmbcoaching.com.